Hey folks, welcome to Borrow Wisdom. Robert Barry Fleming here with guest Lisa Gunterman, the director for the LGBT Center at the University of Louisville and a lifelong social justice organizer with nearly 30 years of experience in nonprofits, social justice, and government sectors. Hey, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. So, Lisa, can you describe your work with the University of Louisville's LGBT Center? Sure. I'm the director of the LGBT Center on the Belknap campus, and the reason uh, I make sure to say that is because we actually have two LGBT Center offices, which is incredible for any university much less a university in the South. So our other office is on our Health and Sciences Center campus. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to do the work that we do. No two days are the same. I might be fundraising one day, planning programs the next, meeting with student groups, and also responding to students in crisis. We also receive a number of calls because we don't have a community center in Louisville. We receive calls on a regular basis from people moving to Louisville, wondering where they should live, we get calls from parents wondering, you know, should they send their, stu their student to UofL? Uh, so it's just a wide range of programs and activities and events. What's the distinction between the two uh, centers and how did it come to be that there are two? I think it's been about five or six years now that we launched on the medical school campus. And, you know, we, met, we have med school, nursing, public health, um, all the health-related majors are on that campus, and it's really a different population. So the, the groundbreaking work is that our office is working with colleagues on the Health Sciences Center campus to infuse LGBTQ competencies into medical school curriculum. So in the past, it used to be that you were voluntarily could self-select into a one-hour and 15-minute workshop led by yours truly about health disparities, but now it's in the curriculum. And they have that information available for free um, uh, with their uh, with the manual that they've put out. That's extraordinary. Now you're a co-founder of Louisville's Fairness Campaign and paid, played a key role in passing the city's ordinance banning discrimination based on sexual orientation, and definitely ensuring the inclusion of protections based on gender identity and expression. Can you talk about how that came to be and? Um, your your continued role in that? Um... Sure. I always just say I was at the right place at the right time. I'm the youngest co-founder, so wow. I started doing social justice work around the age of 19 or so. I was fortunate enough to meet people like Ann Braden and Brother Bob Cunningham, Reverend Coleman, Maddie Jones, Betty Payne, all these incredible leaders. And I remember just being in awe of them. And we were working, you know, we didn't have the word for intersectionality then, but that's what we were doing because there weren't enough of us. There were just a handful of people doing LGBTQ work. Um, so we were always supported and joined by people in the civil rights community. And they were our mentors. You know, uh, just yesterday was Ann Braden's birthday. So, you know, she was one of our mentors. And because of her, when the Fairness Campaign founded, we founded as an anti-racist organization as well and tried to work that into every aspect of what we did. The other things going on at the time, you know, we were protesting the first Gulf War. Uh, the HIV AIDS pandemic was at a crisis level. We were all going to funerals often. Um, we also passed hate crimes legislation. So fairness was launched in 91, but we also uh, 
my friend Robert Byrd was one of the first HIV positive people in like 1989 or 90 to go on television and you know, share about his struggle and talk about workplace discrimination. So he worked with a councilwoman, Melissa Mershon, to get workplace protections passed for people who have HIV, which was just groundbreaking for Louisville. Then we passed hate crimes and we launched fairness and, you know, the work continued from there. And um, since this is an ongoing legacy and seems to have like uh, different generations revisiting some of the same challenges, but with certain uh, specifics being slightly different. Uh, different. What are the differences you're seeing between your experiences, uh, the generation before you, and how students and other young uh, LGBTQ people are participating in justice today? Mm -hmm. I always say I stand on the shoulders of giants. So a lot of the people that I mentioned earlier uh, allowed me to be who I am. I had never met in my life, you know, as a young we didn't even say LGBTQ back then, but as a young queer identified person, I also identify as non-binary. We didn't have those words then either. Um, it, it was really revolutionary for me to meet elder adults who were also straight, who were supportive of me and encouraged me to lead and they made room for me. And I'll never forget that. So in my own leadership style, my hope is that I'm making room for others you know, even doing this interview is kind of awkward for me because I'm always like, let me put something, someone else up here. Let, let's hear from these other voices. Um, so some of the, a lot of things are different, but a lot of things are unfortunately the same. So in my career working with LGBTQ young people, I also mentored for 10 years for the Louisville Youth Group. Uh, I used to write grants, you know, to support. So the statistics related to suicide, suicide attempts, homelessness, and bullying have not changed. So we like to talk about, oh, we have marriage equality, but I'm still worried that 40% of the youth population who live on the streets are LGBTQ identified young people. So we've yet to move the needle on those very important topics. Um, some of the things most different is people who are organizing now have protections. Back then, if, you know, it was not uncommon to be photographed in the newspaper and lose your job the next day because you were working for the fairness campaign. I can think of, you know, three people right off the top of my head who've had that happen to them. And now, you know, if, if you encounter something like that, you at least have recourse. So there's a quote I learned a long time ago that a, a law cannot guarantee what a culture will not give. So the culture may not be supportive, but now we at least have a system in place, you know, to call the human relations Relations Commission and file a complaint, whereas back then you were just on your own and it was legal. And, you know, I've run into people who are closer to my generation as a baby boomer and slightly older who, in order to navigate life uh, where those were the realities are in some ways kind of oriented to deferring to those kind of systemic powers and I won't say allowing, but having to navigate those realities uh, and less inclined to enact those protections. Um, how do you encourage those who are come before you when you know that they have uh, experienced workplace or uh, housing discrimination to pursue their protections? And how do you help others to continue to stay focused on policy and our legal system and understand that these are the places we can make impact? I think that's a lot of the work the Fairness Campaign continues to do today. And I can never judge another person's story or walk their path. So they have to decide for themselves what feels most comfortable and 
you know, what, what they're willing to do or not do because there are risks involved. So when I have conversations about workplace issues today, people are shocked to hear the things that I used to experience. When I graduated from college, there were places that absolutely would not hire me because I presented, you know, again, we didn't have the word non-binary, but that was me then. And there, I knew there were places I would not be allowed to work or hired. So it, it just really limited the pool. And then once I got into a job, the things that people felt liberty to say in my presence, if they said and did those things today, they would be in an HR office. So, you know, again, I can't know someone else's path, but if they're comfortable coming forward, you know, I really encourage them to contact the Human Relations Commission or get involved with the fairness campaign. Back in the day, you know, uh, HIV came around uh, when I was 17 and, and inevitably shaped as a queer Black person my um, understanding of my own body, the safety of um, uh, expression, and the safety of just understanding that in fear that people would also make decisions and take actions that were often discriminatory and diminishing to to those who belong to the communities, regardless of their serial status. Today, we're dealing with some of that same kind of shaming around uh, COVID-19, but it's a very different disease and that transmission is manifesting in, in different ways. And it is actually keeping us in quarantine in certain circumstances and isolated from one another. How is this social distancing impacting the work at the center at this moment? Uh, because this is kind of unprecedented, even as we're having health crises in the community intersecting with these other challenges. I'm glad you made that connection because I wonder too if folks around you know our ages are experiencing the pandemic in similar ways. Like the only re reoccurring nightmares I've ever had, one is of people dying, and that was when my friends were you know, dying of HIV, and the other is like of Nazis and Klan. I hadn't had any of those dreams in such a long time, but when the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I had one of those dreams again. I was like, where is that coming from? And so much of it felt very similar. It's obviously different in terms of you know, communities impacted, but the way that it's been politicized and the way that people are just so angry and adamant about what they believe or don't believe around it, um, is very similar. Um, I do worry about the isolation, uh, especially in a state like Kentucky, where we know that 93 to 98% of young people in high school who identify as LGBTQ have had um, experiences with discrimination or worse in high school. So when the pandemic hit and quarantine came, our students were already on spring break. And once they return, you know, our semester is almost finished because we have to get finished in time, you know, for Derby. So they had already kind of shifted to focusing on final exams and final projects. So we are continuing to examine and interrogate how to best build community when you can't gather together. So we worked with uh, our partners at UK and other uh, colleges and universities across the state to create a virtual pen pal program that ha is happening over the summer. Our staff have done, you know, weekly emails and check-ins with students. So if if we have their email address, we've been, you know, checking in over the summer. They're checking a little bit less, but I, I think the real test is going to be the fall because everybody's coming back to campus, either virtually or hybrid or in person. So we're trying to figure out how to best create, you know, virtual opportunities to gather together. Uh, we'll be celebrating Welcome Week soon, and, you know, we have what we think is a great plan, but, you know, 
I think a colleague described it best by saying we're building the plane as we fly. So we'll we'll try out these ideas and get feedback and you know adjust as we need to. Yeah, every day we're looking at the news and keeping count of the deaths uh, from COVID-19, the increased infections. One of the things that was in the news today um, on the 29th, I guess it is, was that one of the headlines said Louisville's top health official warns of COVID-19 wildfire in the area, that the Sun Belt is even decreasing and now it's kind of happening in this ecosystem. And I think one of the things that I've noted as a 56-year-old queer person is that uh, the cyclical nature of some things and how some things stay pretty consistent. And these kind of fast-changing things I know create trauma. I know the intersection of social change along with biological public health issues is potent in terms of creating difficulty for people to navigate those things. What you described about the nightmares, uh, I had a very good friend who's close to my age who, when they were describing having their COVID-19 experience, having contracted the infection, never used the word. And it just took me right back to like 1981 when people only identified AIDS as a gay cancer, They or they just wouldn't talk about what it was because there was just some inherent shame or guilt that was societally creating a pressure cooker. How do you help students and people who are engaging at the center to navigate those? Are there partnerships with mental health professionals uh, on the campus? Are there Mm -hmm. other healthcare resources that you all partner with in order to best serve the population who come to the center? That's a great question. I think it's also important to recognize the other pandemic in which we live, which is the pandemic of racism and police brutality. So we have all of those going on and, you know, Louisville is a focus with Breonna Taylor. So trying to figure out how to best support students with all of those needs. And, you know, as you probably know, University of Louisville has a five-star rating for being an LGBTQ friendly campus and people are quick to credit the center, but I'm always like, no, this is a this is a team effort here. It is because we have amazing colleagues across campus. So before uh, the summer hit, the Counseling Center, for example, started a group for LGBTQ students so that they could meet virtually over the summer and have support. And, you know, we we could not do the work that we do without our amazing partners across campus. Um, we also have people, you know, working together to make space for students of color. We've had some critical cardinal conversations where we've had caucus meetings for students of color and caucus meetings for white students to learn more about their role in anti-racist work. So those are definitely ongoing issues. Now, I identify as queer. I'm a baby boomer, but um, we have the LGBTQIA communities all represented. And we know just like Black people are not um, one monolithic group, our community is not one monolithic group. Um, One thing that seemed to come to the fore are protections for Black trans identified, um, self-identified folk and the desperate need for that because uh, the impact of, as you described, the militarization of the police, the police brutality, the invisibility of some of those members in those communities just create more destabilized life circumstances. In what way are you able at the center or as a community to give support? Um, How do you navigate the same support that is needed for some, but then some unique elements of different constituents in the community? I think 
to be open to feedback and listen to what students needs because I might think I have a fabulous idea but it doesn't matter if that doesn't meet the needs of black trans students for example. Um, we also try to create opportunities for students to see themselves reflected back so our pride keynote speakers are an example of that and last fall we had Dominique Jackson from the FX series posed as our speaker um, but again you know these are ongoing systemic challenges and you know, we try to meet needs through education of our colleagues, faculty, staff, and also students, uh, because we want to make sure that all students feel like they belong at the University of Louisville. I had asked you earlier before we got on the air here about Urvashi Vaid. Um, can you talk about who this figure is and what they mean to the movement? She's a longtime community organizer. I first met her probably in 1993 at the LGBTQ task force. Uh, annual conference called Creating Change. And, you know, she wrote a book called Virtual Equality. She really kind of challenges and interrogates the notion that we should settle for things like marriage equality when she, you know, she'll talk about systemic change and healthcare, living wage, all these things that would really uplift our community. Um, so her, her works are uh, pretty important. And she was a speaker at UofL, I, I think, through the um, uh, a lecture series about two years ago she was on campus. Yeah, I think it was the Auerbach lecture series. I want to get the name right, and I apologize if I got that wrong. Yeah, she her book was the first that, for me, was the kind of first intersectional that everything from labor to housing to social location to critical race theory were all kind of combined. And I remember my head kind of exploding as a young person trying to go what do these things have to do? Like, are these things interrelated? And just kind of being stunned for a while to really needing time to kind of process that because I hadn't perceived that based on my own anecdotal experience as a person and not thinking of those things as interrelated. But it was that scholarship and that um, articulation of it that gave me a window to begin building a foundation of a deeper critical understanding and having an analysis around this. Mm -hmm. Are there scholars or authors or people that you found particularly inspiring or that you feel are adding to the conversation in a, a way that is illuminating? Well, it's interesting when you talk about her being one of the first people, you know, to write about those issues, because I learned about those interconnections from civil rights leaders. So I remember Bob Cunningham talking about you know, it, it's like a sweater and you pull a thread and it's all connected. So, you know, then you have generations who have access to academia and are, are writing books. But I'm like, I learned that on the sidewalk at, a, at an action, you know, from, from people here in town. And it's great to have all these different networks and people amplifying those messages. And it, it's also important to honor, you know, the, the civil rights leaders who've been, you know, sharing that for decades, really. And so is leadership a, a kind of multi-prong approach that we have those coming from the civil rights, from action in civic spaces to scholars and that intersection really being the place where we're seeing the transformation and the liberation and the collective action? That's my personal belief. And, you know, you asked about scholars. We have an amazing scholar here at the University of Louisville, and that's Dr. Kyla Story. She's the Audre Lorde Chair uh, for Race, Class, Gender, and Orientation. And I always talk to our students, you know, when we talk about leadership, we often focus on, you know, an action and the person with the bullhorn. 
but everybody has a role in the movement. And I always encourage people to go with their strengths, like whatever you're passionate about. If you're an accountant, be an accountant for a movement organization. You know, I think of people like, um, uh, I think her name was Miss Gilmore, who, you know, funded and fed the Montgomery bus boycott. I think of people like Spider Martin, who took photos at Selma and sold them to newspapers up north. And that's how people learned what was going on at Selma. There was a, a time where I was interviewed at the Fairness Campaign and a reporter came in and part of our practice was to ask who was comfortable being on camera because, again, people could get fired for that, who wasn't comfortable. And some of our volunteers moved into other spaces. But one of our volunteers that stayed in the room, a reporter asked what her role was. And she's like, oh, I only do data entry. And I stopped the interview and I said, oh, hang on a minute. Because back then we didn't have text. We didn't have email. We had snail mail and your, your landline. And if she didn't come in every Wednesday to input the new people's names, I couldn't have gotten anybody to show up anywhere. So it's really important to honor and celebrate the role of each person. And no role is more important than any other. Do you have a sense that at this juncture, there is a strategic moment and a strategic way forward given the given circumstances of the two public health crises that would be beneficial to all? So often I find anything that deals with Blackness, I, I always think of Toni Morrison say, there is no Black without white. So I, 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 I wonder about a strategic way forward of helping articulate a, what's in what's in liberation for LGBTQI people for people who identify as straight in the same way, what's in it for white people for Black liberation? Is there a strategic articulation around that in any way that the liberation of uh, having all people free, nobody's free until everybody's free? Right. Well, and Anne Braden would say that, that racism hurts white people. You know, it's our problem to solve. And you know, for a while, you know, if you watch the news, it can be overwhelming. But when I look at especially the young Black leaders involved in the local movement for Black Lives, I'm inspired. I mean, they are brilliant, creative, talented. They are organizing. They've got plans. And I think I'm a planner. And I've, I've been to several events and protests. And I can't tell you how many people have offered me snacks and water. <laughs> you know, it's like, and that's such a basic thing. But they've got the speakers. They've got all the equipment they need, but they also have people feeding people. They have people offering first aid. They have, they have so many of these bases covered. And it's a great example of how every role matters and every role is, is pushing this forward. So, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful with how things are moving forward. And in the Louisville community, just like a lot of other communities, there are LGBTQ Black leaders at the forefront, there was a great showcase in the Career Journal uh, highlighting some of these leaders. And, you know, it's it's just amazing. And I'm I'm inspired by their work. And it's an honor to know and, and be able to learn from their examples. Can you talk a little bit about the Justice Research Center and uh, the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression? Sure. Um, you know, the, I, I laugh because the Justice Resource Center was run by Reverend Coleman. And when I was a young person, I was raised Catholic. I stopped going to church. My parents were upset. And, and I said, it's okay, mom. I'm praying all the time on the sidewalk with Reverend Lewis Coleman because you'd get ready to do an action and he'd like round you up. You'd hold hands, say a prayer, and then stand in front of a dump truck coming into Sluggerfield or something like that. So um, 
those organizations, I think the Alliance is maybe 40 years old now, and it was formed with Angela Davis, Bob Cunningham, Ann Braden, and other, other folks in town. And I think it's the only chapter still going in the United States. You can fact check me on that, but maybe there's one other, but you know, it's, it's still going strong. They're involved in like the uh, Injustice Square Park with the Breonna Taylor case. And then the Justice Resource Center, you know, Reverend Coleman uh, passed away, but anything that happened in the city, I feel like he was examining and interrogating and looking at, okay, you just built uh, this stadium. Why don't you have any minority contractors? And if he wasn't out there raising those issues, I would have never known that those things were taking place. So he was kind of like a, a conscience for Louisville to, to really look at these things and, and to challenge that and make some change. How does one make a sustainable effort around social justice work in any, in your experience? Because obviously these efforts are a marathon and not a sprint and require a kind of ongoing energy towards them. But obviously the work, the intensity of the work and the resistance to some pieces of it must take its toll. So how do you mm -hmm. find yourself sustaining yourself as you do the work? I think it's really important for people to set boundaries and decide ahead of time what they're able to do and not do so that when they're caught up in the moment, they don't take on too much. That's really hard to say at a moment of crisis, however, because, you know, in, until we get justice for Breonna Taylor, there are people working 24-7 on those issues. So, you know, my hope for them is that their self-care game is strong and they've got the support that they need and that the community also wraps their arms around them and offers support to help them sustain that. So if you're not able to be a leader, for example, maybe you can give to their PayPal to support their self-care and, you know, help, help in other ways. But it's definitely, you know, you have to know when to say no and when to step out because the movement needs each one of us. And we're no good to the movement if we can't keep showing up. And it's okay to take a break. Like people need to give themselves permission to take a break. What was your first action? I was I was really inspired and heartened by going to the youth march and hearing the four young ladies up there say, you know, this is our first march and oh, wow. uh, see how energized they were. Um, just really, I found it so inspiring and remember that kind of energizing of my first march or my first, you know, the first time I protested. What was your your first experience and what brought it brought you to that moment? So. I attended a ton of actions, but the first one I ever led was, I called it a circle of justice, where we encircled City Hall for the fairness campaign. So this happened in, I believe, uh, June of 92 or 90, must have been June of 92. So, you know, again, back then we didn't have Facebook. We couldn't mobilize that way. You would put information out there and have literally no idea if five people were going to show up or 500. So you know, first off, I have to give credit where credit is due. And I got this idea again from the civil rights elders because they had done something similar back in the 70s. And then a friend of mine and I went down to try to figure out how many people would it take to encircle City Hall. And we were both like in our early 20s. And, you know, there were no cameras all over downtown like there now. And we were literally like doing arm's length apart, trying to figure out how many people were going to come. The day of the action, it was pouring down rain. And I thought, oh my gosh, nobody's going to show up. It's going to be a bus. And right before it, it was going to take place, the sky opened and it was a gorgeous day. And 
because I was so young, I always like directed media to older activists and things, but that's a great example of them give, making room for me, trusting my ideas, supporting me along the way. And so when the media showed up, they're like, no, it's you. But they did pull me aside and teach me really quick how to talk on camera and that kind of thing. So when we got downtown, you know, it, it was just a beautiful scene. We had not only enough people to encircle City Hall, but we had a, a couple, you know, a couple of rows. And we always have a sense of humor in the fairness campaign with our work. And I think if you're not having fun, you know, you may as well not do it. The whole point of the action was the Board of Aldermen refused to vote on the fairness ordinance and it was going to die in committee. So our strategy was we wanted them to vote, even though we knew we would lose, because then we could organize and get people to run against the people who voted no. So the whole purpose of the action was to get a date for a fairness vote. So that, you know, fairness campaign signs were always yellow, always Helvetica font with a star at the top. And the, you know, nobody had copy machines or printers in their offices. So somebody had to go to a Kinko's and make copies. So the guy that made the sign showed up and the sign said, I want a date. So he had like hundreds of people circling city hall, including LGBTQ folk holding a sign that says, I want a date. And you know, the Venetian blinds in Metro Hall were like moving and they're like, what are those people doing down there? And it just kind of, you know, pushed their buttons on every level to think queer folk are outside asking for a date. And it was just a great, you know, visual display. And um, that action couldn't have happened without the coalitions that we built, because, again, there were only so many people who could be visible who were LGBTQ. So we had like every group, every social justice group in town participated in those kinds of actions. When I was out in L.A., there was um, yeah, it was a pretty eventful time in American history. I was out there during the um, uh, O.J. trial, the Rodney King beating, the riots, and uh, obviously Prop 8. And uh, I know when we were marching, I was marching with a partner out there and um, kind of getting that virulent hate uh, speech as we were marching. What was it like, you know, since my time was in California at that time, it wasn't back here in Kentucky, I always wonder what impact Prop 8 had on actions here and the national conversation and how quickly things evolved. I, I think many of us didn't think that the legal action would happen as quickly as it did and recognized it was in some record time and wonder if we're also experiencing some backlash from that in some communities that it happened so quickly. But what was the impact of those kinds of things in your experience here and how those things intersected or informed each other? Well, in, in the early days of fairness, we had community hearings, I guess, for which were horrible. And they allowed so many people to sign up and you could have three minutes to speak. And for, you know, for every pro, there was someone against fairness. Those were some of the most vile, disgusting, hateful, full of vitriol, uh, dialogues I've ever heard. And the things that they said, you know, one of the things they would be like, it's going to turn into San Francisco. And we're like, cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if but, only. Yeah. you know, we, we try to keep our sense of humor, but again, I mean, it was just abusive is the only word I can really think of. It was just disgusting. But we also had city leaders who talked to us like that. And we also had, when we did nonviolent civil disobedience, we had police who showed up wearing gloves, you know, acting like we were all a biohazard. And it was just really, you know, it, it was disheartening and it was 
anybody who lived through that, one of the hearings, I think, went till about 11 o'clock at night. So it was like hours and hours and hours hearing those people. And that kind of hasn't changed. I mean, you look at the comment sections, they're still alive and well in the comment section on any topic. You, you know, you, again, you look at, you know, looking about Breonna Taylor and racial justice and you see people who feel very comfortable sharing their views there. Well, back then, I mean, they, there was a vote. The first fairness vote that failed was uh, actually on my birthday on, uh, in 1992, August 25th. But we had to walk through hordes of anti-fairness people who were screaming and grabbing and pushing and pulling and spitting and like literally I, I was thumped with somebody's Bible and I was like, you know, because I was young and also looked like a 15 year old boy, I really, they got it like incited anger in them, you know, and like I had one guy come up and grab me and be like, how old are you? And it was just intense. And sadly, I, I still see those kinds of behaviors. They don't, necessarily show up in public, but, you know, we just had the three percenters in Louisville for what, the third time this year. So in some ways we've come a long way and in other ways it, you know, we're still fighting these battles. Which brings up a really good point. I always think of Martin Luther King's mountaintop speech, not as something about an exceptional Negro saying, look at me, what a visionary I am, but modeling for us that our investment in movements are not always for our own personal comfort, but that we recognize we're investing in a future that may not flower for, we're planting seeds that might not flower for a hundred years even in terms of a whole cultural evolution and liberation project where people are not ruled by these disconnects with mm -hmm. themselves. But I wonder about that in terms of the training for, uh, is that something that you were briefed or encouraged to think about making acting now for change that may mm -hmm. evolve gradually, that we may see some movement very quickly, but some things may persist for your lifetime and mm -hmm. others' lifetimes, but still very much worth working towards? Absolutely. I mean, we would, you know, part of the community aspect of all this is like, again, we didn't have text messaging and things. So we'd work on mailings at the Braden Center, for example. And there's the task of doing the mailing, but then there's the community building aspect of just hanging around the table with these amazing leaders who are sharing their stories. But they definitely always talked about it's a marathon, not a race. And back then I was this angry young queer kid who like wanted stuff now. And they really, you know, taught me a lot and were patient and, you know, shared their stories and history. And the notion of planting seeds, I mentioned having been raised Catholic, one of my heroes is us. Uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was the slain Salvadorian Archbishop, and he talks about um, we plant seeds that will one day bloom, but maybe not in our lifetime. And he talks about it, it, it helps to take the long view and to step back and to realize that we're planting seeds now that we may not uh, see realized, but, you know, really holding on to that hope that the next generations will. Lisa, what would you hope to impart or share or ask us to consider as we're moving into another phase of this transformative, liberating time that mm -hmm. also seems pretty challenging with the two public health crises that we're currently navigating with a reckoning with systemic racism and the COVID-19 continued infection and increase of deaths around that. I think the main thing to me is to recognize the interconnection of all forms of oppression and that my liberation is tied to the liberation of others and to not leave anybody behind. 
So when we were working on the fairness ordinance, for example, we were only the 23rd city in the country to pass gender identity and expression in our ordinance. And I can't tell you how many times people said, hey, if you drop gender identity expression, we can get this passed quicker. But how often when we leave people out, do we circle back around to say, okay, hey, we got ours, now we're gonna get yours. Usually if you're left out, you're left out and, and things are carrying on without you. So to really resist the temptation to be um, separated from each other, because that's kind of what upholds power is, you know, separating people and, you know, adding, you know, fuel to the fire that, you know, hey, we'll help you all out, but leave, leave this other group behind. Lisa Gunterman is the director for the LGBT Center at the University of Louisville. Lisa, can't thank you enough for your time today and your wisdom. We're very grateful that you took the time to join us. Thanks so much for having me and for all the work you're doing. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll see you next week, folks, for another episode of Borrowed Wisdom. Borrowed Wisdom is a community-supported project of Actors Theatre Direct, the virtual home of Actors Theatre of Louisville. It's hosted by Executive Artistic Director Robert Barry Fleming. Learn more about Actors Theatre of Louisville at actorstheatre.org.